that things go wrong? <laughs> I think it's hilarious, especially in light of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, today we're going to be discussing problems. And so if you have the Bibles with you, open up the 2 Corinthians. We'll be looking at chapter 1 both this week and next week. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible with you, why don't you have your Bible with you? <laughs> Bring your Bible. We're, we're going to get together. We're going to study the Word together. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1. As, as you do that, let's do something interesting and dangerous. Let's step into the throne room of the living God. I'm going to lead prayer really quickly. And what leading prayer means so that we're all clear is not that you sit and just listen to me talk. It means that as you hear my words, you agree with me before God about what we're talking about. So I'm going, to, I'm going to begin praying, and I want you to just be mindful that we're all carrying this into the throne room of God, okay? Let's pray. Our Father, our Lord, our God, praise you for the opportunity to gather with believers this day in this place. We thank you that we gather with uh, the many uh, who, who are unworthy and the many who are so worthy gathering around the world today. Uh, some in danger uh, of, of their lives for just meeting. God, we praise you for your church. We praise you for the opportunity to fellowship here in this place and to study. Uh, and that, that this freedom is afforded to us in this place. God, I pray we wouldn't take it for granted. Master, as we begin to delve into your word, I pray your Holy Spirit would just open up these pages. That, that the word would speak directly to our lives. That we do the hard work of applying this to ourselves. Uh, not just gaining more information. God, as that's the case, Lord, we pray that we go forth from this place, change people, because we have heard from you. We love you, God. We love you. We love you. Thank you so much for loving us. It's in your most precious name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be talking about the church in Corinth, and in order to do that, before we get going with that, I really need to kind of bring you up to speed on what has happened in Corinth building up to this time. Um, if we've got the map here, if you'll look at the map, um, let's see if my shadow can do the work. Oh, it can't. No worries. Um, you see Athens there, kind of in the middle. Corinth is off to the west a little bit. And so this is a church that Paul founded. He started this. He spent about a year and a half developing a church in this place, Corinth. Um, and you, if you see where it says the word Corinth there, that's southern Macedonia. All right, so everything south of that, on down into the Greek peninsula down there, is a region called Achaia. Now, if you've got your Bibles, if you look at verse 1, you'll see Paul says this is to the church at Corinth, but not just to the church of Corinth, also to all the churches in the region of Achaia. In other words, it's going to go to the church Corinth, but all the other churches throughout the Greek peninsula, including places like Athens, are meant to read this text that we're going to go through today. Does that make sense? Uh, just a brief history of Corinth. Corinth was a major trade hub of the ancient world. It was a port city. Um, lots of religious attachments in the church at Corinth. They have tons of deities that they worship there. And so when Paul starts a church there, it was a difficult prospect. He's bringing news of the one God to a community that believes in many gods. But he does found the church. And after he founds the church, he then leaves for a little while. He goes off and begins doing mission work elsewhere. In that condition... He hears news. He gets word that there are problems in the church at Corinth. How fitting. We're going to talk about problems today. <laughs> Here's the deal. He hears that the church at Corinth is messing up. And so he sends one of, his, um, one of his compatriots, a man named Titus. He says, go to that church, and I want you to figure out what's going on in Corinth. I want you to carry this letter, and I want you to deal with them. All right? And Titus does so. 
we have the letter of 1 Corinthians written to the church, and I want to talk briefly about that because you can't understand 2 Corinthians unless you know what happened in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes the letter 1 Corinthians, and in it he deals with all these problems that the church is having. And so he, let me just break them down very quickly for you. Firstly, there were divisions in the body. So Paul's talking to the church. He says, you guys are dividing out over stupid things. You're giving your allegiances to different people. You're, some are saying, I follow Paul. Some saying, I follow Apollos. You have these divisions, and they're based on nothing. Paul deals with sexual misconduct in the church at Corinth. And, and it wasn't so much that people were doing things that were wrong, but if you look at 1 Corinthians, Paul hammers on the church because the church was saying, it's okay, we're open-minded people. It's all right. And they were congratulating themselves on being open-minded and being okay with sexual immorality in the congregation. So God hammers on, or Paul hammers on the church for that. There were also food issues going on in the church. And by food issues, I don't mean like lactose intolerance or gluten-free type stuff. The, the food issues they were having was some people were, were saying, hey, it's okay for us to eat anything. We've got freedom in Christ. And they were offending people. And then other people were being offended. And so Paul talks to the church about really kind of taking care to preserve one another's feelings and being mindful of what other people told, hold to be uh, morally valuable. There were also problems in the gathering, in the actual church meeting. They weren't doing what they ought to be doing as they got together, and they allowed some, some kind of bad habits to creep into the church. In addition, there were theological issues concerning the resurrection. So Paul deals with all those things as he's talking to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. Now, after this, you think, okay, they've gotten a letter from Paul. Paul clearly hammered them on these issues. Surely they got it together, right? Wrong. If you look at uh, 2 Corinthians, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 tells us what happened in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Paul says we had a painful visit. He describes it as a painful visit. Now, this is what that means. He told the Corinthians what they were doing wrong, and some people probably went, yeah, we need to get this fixed. And then other people probably went, who's Paul? I don't care what this guy says. And so Paul showed up in person and rebuked people, and there were probably acts of the Spirit in the midst of that, demonstrating Paul's authority. Regardless, Paul describes it as painful. It is a difficult visit or an uncomfortable visit. Your Bible might render it something else. Painful is the word that's being used in the Greek. And so this is what we've got. Paul shows up. He has this painful visit. After he had taken significant pains to, to, to fix the church here in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, he'd shown up. He had this painful visit where he had to confront people. After this is done, he sends Titus to the church, and he's like, what's going on? I, have they changed? Have things taken? And he doesn't hear back from Titus, and he doesn't hear back from Titus, and he doesn't hear back from Titus. And so finally, Paul just, he gets on a boat, he sails to Macedonia, and by the time he gets to Macedonia, he meets with Titus, and Titus says, it's good, they have changed. The Corinthian church is listening to what you're saying. And this is the context in which 2 Corinthians is written. Now, I'd like to tell you that 2 Corinthians had all their problems squared away, but the truth is, they didn't. That's why 2 Corinthians is written. Paul's going to lay out some more problems. Here's what I want you to do. When you think about Corinth or the Corinthian church, I want you to think of the word problems. What is that sound? <laughs> That's the wind? Hilarious. Hey. So long as it's not somebody with irritable bowel syndrome, we're... Ugh. 
<laughs> that would be a powerful snore. Like, somebody please use your elbow. Oh, man. When you think of the church at Corinth, you should think of what word? Problems. Remember it. Okay, we'll talk about this even more next week. But today it's important because we're actually discussing problems as a topic. Uh, the good news here is if you came to church this morning, you're like, I have no problems. I plan on having no problems. You can sleep during this sermon. You can make the sounds like the wind. <laughs> My guess is that everyone here has problems. As it's described in scripture, we, we read that man is born to problems as surely as the smoke flies upward. In other words, it is part of our lives. And so we want to deal with problems. Here's what I'd like to do with our time. I want to start kind of broadly. And I want to talk about what the scripture does as it deals with problems. And then we want to get a bit more focused. I want to talk about Paul's ministry and what Paul does as he encounters problems with the churches. Then I want to get very specific and I want to look at what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 11 of our text with this church dealing with its problems. Okay? So open up your Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Why are problems featured in the Bible? Why are problems featured in the Bible? Occasionally, I'll run into somebody. I, I, I personally, I love dealing with skeptics and critics of the faith. It's like one of my passions. And I'll occasionally run into somebody, and they'll say, you know what? I've read the Bible. I know what's in there. I'm better than those people. Because what they've done is they've done a cursory reading of the Bible. They flip it open. They begin looking at scriptural texts, and they start reading things going, what is this even about? And, and they see people who are rife with problems. Amen? And if you've ever done this, I don't know if you've ever just kind of done the, uh, the Bible roulette where you just put your finger down somewhere and start reading. You're going to find that if, if you go to the Bible and you think, hey, this is a book of rules, or this is a book about good people teaching us things, you're mistaken. That's not what the scriptures are. I find that some people have a problem with the Bible because they misunderstand what the scriptures are at the very base. And this is sort of our fault as Christians. Here's why. Um, and don't feel bad if this is you, because this is me too. Sometimes we'll say things to people like, the Bible is a love letter from God. And I've said that before. And it is. I mean, it contains God's story of relating to human beings and loving human beings. But if a non-believer hears that and he flips open to the book of Judges, he's going to be really confused. The book of Judges, if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, is a story, it's a series of stories about what man does when he thinks these things are right in his own eyes. It's a story of people living largely without God and God's salvation of these people despite how they're living. It's a dark book. If you were to just flip open to the Song of Solomon and say, what's God's word for me today? Song of Solomon is a book about sexual love between two people. You'd probably be head scratching or... You may be thinking, all right. <laughs> the scriptures need to be understood in context. Please don't think I'm diminishing the scriptures in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the scriptures are God-breathed. They're the word of God. They're there for the teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. This is what the Bible is for us. But we have to understand what's there. What's there is not a book of rules. What's there is not simply a love letter for God. What's there are a lot of problems. So why would God let that happen? Why feature problems so prominently? Well, the reason is because, number one, the Bible is honest. Amen? The Bible is honest. If you were to go and study Egyptian history, one of the things you find very quickly is Egyptians never lost a war. 
Egyptians did not have any difficulties like famines or anything like that. Do you know why? Because they recorded their own history. And they didn't tell the things that were unflattering about them. They didn't talk about those things. Uh, this is why Egyptologists have a very difficult time navigating in the, in the ancient world of Egypt, because there are entire people, places, and epochs that are eliminated because they were embarrassing to uh, the, the Egyptians. That being said, the scriptures are brutally honest. Brutally honest. We go into great detail about problems that people have, and I think we should take courage from that, amen? Because I don't know about you, but I also have problems. The scriptures deal with problems at the level and the volume that they do because they're honest. But more than that, they deal with that because God knows this is the situation we are in. He's not ever dealing with a human being whose life is devoid of problems. The scriptures are honest, and the church has problems. Would you agree with me that the church has problems? If you had in mind that the church is a perfect place full of perfect people, let me be the first to disappoint you. It is not so. This is never the way it was set forth within Scripture. This is not who we are and what we are to be part of. The church has problems. Let me say this, and you might find this a little controversial. A healthy church is a church with problems. A healthy church is a church with problems. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, what's the best kind of hospital? Is the best kind of hospital the one where nobody's sick or nobody's ill? At first you might think, yeah, I mean, that, that's what makes a great hospital, right? We got everybody fixed. But if that were the goal of the hospital, they could just take all the patients and put them in wheelchairs and gurneys, wheel them out to the parking lot, let them loose, and all the nurses could give each other high fives. Yes, we're a hospital devoid of sickness and illness. Is that the goal of the hospital? The goal of the hospital is to treat the ill, the infirmed, those who are sick, those who have difficulties. The church, by the same token, is a place where people who have serious problems are meant to gather and be healed, just like in a hospital. So what would healthy problems be if we were looking for what healthy problems look like in the church? Um, a healthy church has spiritual discipline as part of what it does. And by that I mean this, we, we see sin issue and we deal with sin issues. If somebody has a sin issue that's outstanding in their lives, the church contends with them. It fights alongside of them, or in, if necessary, in opposition to them, to help them be in the right place. That is what a healthy church does. You might look at that and think, that's terrible. No, that's God's design. That's why God form, formats the church as he does. So spiritual discipline is one healthy aspect of what a church does. A healthy church uh, should also have the problems of immaturity. And I don't mean that we should be content with immaturity. I mean that there should be immature people in the church who are being grown. In other words, the church is, is meeting out their needs. It is uh, systematically drawing them into deeper and deeper relationship with God. That's the way a church should look. You might see some churches and think, man, these people don't know anything about God. Praise the Lord, so long as they don't remain there, we're doing the right thing. We are taking them from point A to point B. Spiritual infants should exist in the church. Spiritual infants should not stay infants in the church. But we should have people who are being fed and being grown. Amen? We also should have... <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> this is going to make a great story. 
we also have imperfect people in the church. Um, by show of hands, how many of you love your family? Would you say you, you love your family? That's good. I think most everybody. <laughs> I'm not going to call you out. Stand up. <laughs> how many of you, by show of hands, are also irritated by your family periodically? <laughs> I know that's everybody. All right. If you've be, been irritated, how many of you, if you had the choice and the ability, would change things about people in your family? Quite a few? Okay. <laughs> The family of God is no different. As we gather as the church, we, we can love one another and we can be rubbed the wrong way by one another. And it's okay. Uh, there, there, people could sing differently than you. They could, uh, people might have a little bit of theological disagreement with you or maybe they have political views that are somewhat different than yours. That's okay. They can irritate you. They can, be, they can bother you on some level or another. As long as you're loving one another and you're pursuing God together, you're in the right place. Amen? Um, we don't often do this, but when you have a problem that involves other people in the church, please listen to what I'm saying. See it as an opportunity for personal growth. When you're irritated, bothered by something, see it as an opportunity for personal growth. If you're standing next to me and I'm singing, I sound like a harpy gargling gravel. It's, it's terrible. Um, that's an opportunity for you to go, Lord, I praise you that people like Ben exist. <laughs> I thank you, God, that not everybody's like me, that you've gifted us differently, right? Um, that is a good thing. I, I, you know, you guys might have heard, we, we recently adopted, uh, last week we adopted Colton into our family, which is awesome, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I nearly gave up on foster care the first year. It was, we had him in our house just a couple months, and I'm like, this kid is terrible. He, he won't listen. He's, he is rebellious. He's stubborn. And I knew that going into it, but I thought, I don't know if I can contend with somebody like this. And the whole time I'm thinking about how difficult he is in all of his problems, I'm not reflecting myself on why I'm getting so upset and irritated. As we talked as a family in the aftermath of, you know, the first couple months, about six months of, of Colton being in our home, we reflected on how different we had become as people. Our levels of patience, of tolerance, of love and compassion, of pity, just grew and grew and grew. And I wasn't thinking about how God was using this situation to develop me, but he was. Guys, as we bump into problems in our day-to-day -day life, as we have these irritations and difficulties, God is affording us an opportunity to either listen to him and go, how do I need to change? Lord, how do I need to be different? Or to stubbornly just go, it's everybody else's fault. Somebody paying attention to the Holy Spirit will change, will become better, more mature, more spiritually right as problems enter their lives. Amen? When we see problems, it is good for us to own the problem. Uh, problems are not a mistake. They're not something to be justified. Oh, you know what? They're, speaking of problems, I just missed a page. Like, you, like I said, you might not think this is funny, but I do. Um, the church has problems. The church broadly has problems, and this church in particular has problems. And so what I'd like to do with the rest of our time is just tell you about all the problems this church has. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. Uh, this church has problems. Look, it's easy to get in the habit of seeing problems elsewhere. 
Our natural mode is to see problems as coming from anyone or anywhere other than ourselves. Think about how you respond when somebody approaches you and says, hey, I'm seeing something in your life that I don't think God likes. Do you get defensive immediately? I think that's in our nature. It's easy to get that way about your church, to defend an individual congregation of believers too. And so we tend to look outside, we think, oh, that pathetic mega church over there. They are so off base. They're not preaching anything. Or, oh, that dying small congregation over there. Don't they see and understand what God wants from them? And, and they're, they're just pushing people out with the way they behave. It's easy to see it when it's somebody else. It's more difficult to see the problems within your own congregation. Every church and every culture is beautiful and broken. Uh, Rachel Grindle, the head of uh, Missions for Christ and Youth, quotes this. It's an old adage, uh, missionary adage. Every culture and every church is beautiful. On one hand, there's amazing things about them, and it is broken. There are aspects that need to be altered within that. That will always be true of the church, of any church. Beautiful. It is God's design broken. There are ways in which we are improving and becoming greater. So do you know the problems in this given body? Do you understand them? Can you look around and think, yeah, here's something we need to do better with. Every Christian ought to be behaving that way. It's, it's not that we want to criticize everything that's going on, but we want to constantly be thinking about how God can be used to do something better in our circumstances. That's problems in general. Why God deals with problems. Why does God have so many problems in the scripture? Because the scriptures are honest. Because the church has problems. Because this church has problems. And God is trying to speak to our circumstance. Let's dig a little deeper here. Now let's specifically look at Paul and how Paul contends with problems in the New Testament. Paul's letters act as sort of a template for us in contending with problems. Uh, and, and I want to just look at kind of how Paul broadly deals with problems. Then we'll get more specific as we, we go forward. Paul identifies problems in the church. He is blatant, he is obvious, he speaks them out loud, he expresses them without hiding what the problem is. So in the New Testament, we see uh, Paul and Peter and, and James, we see people like this dealing um, with, uh, with all sorts of church issues. Uh, things like distinction or favoritism, religious arrogance, false teachings, misunderstandings regarding the faith, worthless talk, gossip, laziness, sexual misconduct, failures of leadership to rebuke and correct sexual misconduct, useless religious, religious practices, careless use of church meeting time, failure to consider outsiders in the church meeting, perversion of the gospel, etc., etc., etc. They, they hammer on tons of these issues. But here's the deal. Before they can hammer on them, they have to name them. So what you'll see Paul doing is identifying the problem and then saying it, like expressly, hey church, this is a problem you have. It's not popular in our culture. Um, our culture uh, tends to, to, to portray problems as, and, and dealing with problems as mean, as mean-spirited or unkind. We don't want to say anything out loud because that might, might offend somebody and that might be difficult for them to hear or understand. And that's how the culture operates, but that can't be how the church operates. The church has to address issues as they come up. Consider that if Paul were playing nice by our cultural standards, consider how many people would continue on that broad path to destruction. How many people would be lost to eternity because Paul refused to actually engage and speak on these issues? After we identify a problem, um, we need to call sin, sin. 
Sometimes a problem is not just a mistake somebody's making. Sometimes it's not just a personal preference issue. Sometimes a problem the scriptures actually address and say, this is evil. God disdains this. And when we see that in the word, we have to call sin, sin. It's not a mistake. It's not something to be rationalized or justified. It's not something to be blamed on someone else or some other circumstance. Sin is sin, and it needs to be called such. Sometimes when I'm sitting down and counseling with a couple, um, we'll start talking, and, and I'll notice that like they, they're, they're playing nice with their words and their sentiments, and they're not, they're not talking about their actual problems. And one of the things I say to them is, you can't have a solution until you have a problem. Do you guys know what's wrong? Can you tell me what's wrong? Within the church, we have to be able to do this too. When we have problems, we have to identify the problem. You cannot have a solution until you have a problem. Uh, next, I want to say we need to own the problem. And by this, I don't mean you take blame for everything that's there. I just mean that on some level, we recognize that we, we are part of a problem. We own the difficulties that we've uh, created or been part of within the church. Secondly, I want to talk about seeing the problem through lenses of the gospel. So Paul, on one hand, identifies the problem. He's blatant about it. This is your issue. But then he does this kind of cool thing where he says, you know, you've got this issue, but you've also subjected yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So on one hand, you've got a problem. On the other hand, the gospel is present in your lives. And so Paul will say, let's look at the two. Let's see if what you're doing looks like what the gospel message says you're supposed to be doing. And if those two are in conflict, guess which loses? The things that are going wrong in your life, the things that are your mistakes, your issues, if those things do not conform to the gospel, then they've got to be cast aside. Do you know what it means to be subject to somebody? It means to put yourself under their authority. To put yourself under their authority. So if you have personal preferences and they vie against what God has called you to, you subject yourself to what God has called you to. You put yourself under the authority of the gospel message. When I was in college, I, uh, <laughs> some of you who knew me during that time period know that I went through a litany of different um, uh, kind of career enterprises, thinking of what I wanted to do with my life. So it was mortician, and uh, for a while there was going to be a, a family therapist, a counselor, family therapist, and I thought, this is cool, this will be it. And, and I had one moment of kind of serious introspection where I started looking at what all that involved. And you know what I thought? I can't do this. I can't sit down all day and listen to people's problems. And so I went into ministry. <laughs> where I sit down all day and listen to people's problems. Uh, there is a difference. There's a difference. And the difference is this. I'm allowed to bring people into the presence of God Almighty and say, here is what the gospel message is. Here's what the scriptures say about your condition. And it, it's not that I disparage counseling. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of times, if, if I'm trying to counsel outside of the word of God, I'm marching people around in, in circles in the wilderness of their feelings and their formative experiences. And I love that the word speaks particularly to our issues. And we can take the gospel and we can say, how does this inform what I'm doing, what I'm thinking? I like sitting down in a counseling session and going, Jesus Christ said this, you're doing that, change. We need to see the problem through the lenses of the gospels or the gospel, clarity that the world cannot offer is given to us in those moments. Rick Warren uh, wrote a book. You might have heard of it. It made a little bit of an impact called The Purpose Driven Life. <laughs> it's like everywhere for a while there. 
And I don't know if you've read the book or not. Uh, the book, I think, is worth it for, if for no other reason than because of the first phrase in the book. Uh, the very first phrase in the book, he says, it is not about you. It is not about you. Your life is not about you. Now, that's, that's a pretty radical claim for somebody who's outside of Christ. Well, I thought my life was all about me. And, and the, the thrust of it is, no, your life is meant to be lived for God. You are to give your life to him. It is a completely different thing than constantly worrying about my problems, my circumstances, and focusing on self. He calls us to focus outwardly. The fact is, the lenses you are wearing, the lenses you were born with in this world, the, the worldview you have apart from the gospel, it's smudged, it's cracked, it's scratched, it's broken. You cannot see clearly unless you're looking through the lenses of the gospel. Paul identifies problems in the church, and then he invites people to see the problems through the lenses of the gospel, and that offers clarity in the, and change in the right direction. Amen? So in practical terms, 1 Corinthians, all those problems that I just mentioned before, earlier in the service, watch how Paul addresses those. He'll go, here's your problem. It's identified. There it is, right in front of everybody. What does the gospel proclaim? How does that inform your problem? Oh, your problem doesn't mesh with the gospel. Get rid of it. Your issue does not mesh with the gospel. Get rid of it. And so things like disunity, he'll go, hey, how come some of you guys are... are giving allegiance to one person or another. You're dividing out over stupid things. He'll go, I'm sorry, I thought the gospel message was that we died to self and we put ourselves under the one authority of the Christ, the one Lord of our lives. I thought that's the way it worked. Guess what you got to get rid of? Your divisions. I see you have problems with sexual immorality in your church and you're acting as though this is an okay thing. Yes, Christ gave us forgiveness from sin. Christ gave us redemption, but he didn't say it was okay to remain in our sin and not change, and, and the way Paul will phrase it in other places. By no means, how can we live in our sin any longer? And the idea here is, look, you've, you've given yourself over to Christ, then you've got to conform to his gospel, which means things in my life have to change, even sexual desires, even my discomfort in confronting people about sexual desire and sexual escapades. The gospel proclaims forgiveness of sin and redemption. And Paul will drive people to that, but it's not okay to remain entrenched in your problems and feel like you're, you're right just doing your own thing. All right, so the scriptures teach us about problems. They speak explicitly about problems because they are present in the church. They're present in this church. They are, they are abundant in the human experience. Paul deals with problems, first of all, by identifying the problem, then by holding it up to the gospel message and seeing whether or not it adheres to scripture. Let's look specifically at the text now. I want to see how Paul approaches people. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 in the text. Oh no, he's just now getting to the Bible. It's okay, well... Still in relatively on time. Somebody should probably give me a high sign, though, when I'm going over. <laughs> Just to be safe. It is important to know that Paul does not just deal with problems. He deals with people. Paul doesn't just deal with problems. He deals with people. In verse 1 through 10, or 1 through 11, I'm sorry, Paul says the word comfort 10 times. 10 times he uses the word comfort to describe what's going on. So what I want to look at first is Paul, when he does try to deal with problems, he brings the good feelings first. He portrays that he loves the individual who's being worked with. And this is what he does for the, the Corinthian church. 
Notice he starts the passage with a call for peace in verse 2. Grace to you and peace, that is inner calm and spiritual well-being from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might be going, oh, I, those are just filler words, right? That's, that's like where I show up and I'm like, hey, how you doing? And I don't expect anybody to be like, well, here's what's going on in my life. I'm just using it to express, hey, we're greeting one another. This is not what Paul's doing here. When Paul calls out to the church, when he says grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, he's, he's laying a blessing on the church at the outset. I want you to be blessed by God. May you have God's rich, unmerited favor. May you have God's inner peace in the midst of these problems and turmoil that you're experiencing. This is what he's conveying to the church in verse 2. In verse 3 through 4, Paul begins invoking supernatural comfort and encouragement for the church. He says this, Blessed be the, God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. When you see the word mercy, think of the word pity. The Father of pity. In other words, God sees your problems. He, he has mercy for you. He pities you in the midst of that. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts and encourages us in every trouble. He's calling on God to supernaturally extend comfort into the midst of the Corinthian church, the church he's about to rebuke again. Paul identifies with these Christians. He's bringing the good feelings by telling them that we are hurt together and we are healed together. Look at verse uh, 4 and 5. The God of all comfort who comforts and encourages us in every trouble so that we will be able to comfort and encourage those who are in any kind of trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as Christ's sufferings are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Paul had undergone serious difficulties. He, Timothy, Silas, uh, Titus, they, they've been experiencing serious problems, persecution. They're being chased from town to town. There are abuses where they're being beaten. They're, um, they're being harried by certain sectors of the Roman and Jewish world. They're experiencing severe difficulties. And one of the things they do at the outset is they say, look, just as we are being hurt, the God of comfort who comforts us, that's the God we're calling on to comfort you. Paul doesn't just bring the good feelings, though. If he just brought the good feelings, he wouldn't be a good pastor. Paul also reminds them of spiritual power in the midst of this. We're going to finish out on this. He brings good feelings. Love you guys. I want you guys to be comforted. I want you guys to experience peace. But then he says, hey, um, difficulties are present, and they're present for good reason. Have you ever had to take a kid to the dentist? Like a little, little one. Or, or to the doctor where, you know, they got to get shots. How well do they do? <laughs> you know, part of, the, part of the difficulty, part of what makes it so bad is they don't understand. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of having to hold your kid down while they get shots. But they're screaming and they're looking at you like, what is wrong with you? I thought you cared about me. That lack of knowledge is what makes the experience so bad for them. You just want to convey to them, look, this is happening for a reason. I'm doing this for your own good. If you just could understand, if you could just know that what's taking place right now is good for you, it would make this so much better. Paul talks to the church in that regard, and he says, what is going on? The trials you've experienced, the problems you've experienced, they're there for your good. They're there to develop you so that you can become something greater. 
He says, look, God rescued us uh, in verse 8 through 10. God rescued us in the midst of our difficulties. As we experience persecution, God drew us through that. In other words, the Lord has a plan. He's doing something even in the midst of problems. And the Spirit is active in our mission. But he doesn't just remind them of the power of God. He also reminds them of the power of prayer. Why did God rescue us in the midst of this? Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 10, and 11. He rescued us from so great a threat of death and will continue to rescue us. On him we have set our hope, and he will again rescue us while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then thanks will be given by many persons on behalf of the gracious gift granted to us through the prayer of many. Paul's saying you are not helpless in the midst of your problems. Praise God, the church is not helpless in the midst of our problems. He says, just as we've experienced problems and we were prayed through it, your prayers accomplished our salvation at the hands of our enemies and those who set themselves against us. That same God is listening to your prayers. Now you're not helpless in the midst of your circumstance. God has power. There is power in prayer. And there's power in perspective. Paul draws their attention to the fact that what is going on is bigger than just their problems. It's not bad luck. It's not just circumstances. These things have passed through the hands of the sovereign God of this universe. And he said, okay, test my child. You guys have seen a forge work, right? And Howard does that kind of thing all the time. Can you make anything useful without hitting it or heating it? You and I, we pass through the fires, and it's going to be a normal part of our experience. We're going to run it probably before the day is out. Some of us are going to run into difficulty. If you're not carrying it with you right now, the God of this universe has said, it's okay to let that into the life of my kid. Let them be strong from it. And remember, think about the kid getting shots. This is an item where we have to know the God of this universe, no matter how ugly the circumstance in, can be using this for his glory if I'm attentive to the Spirit right now. Why are problems talked about? Because we got them. What's Paul, uh, Paul's approach to the problem? He identifies the problem. He's blatant about it, even if it's offensive. And even, even in the midst of that, then he holds it up to the gospel and says, let's see how this corresponds with God's word. And then I want you to also notice that Paul's approach is not just to the problem, but to people. He loves them, he gives them comfort, and he reminds the people who have problems of their spiritual power. Let's go to our master in prayer. Almighty God, we are people who have problems. You knew it. You, you framed us up in this world knowing that we would have conflict and difficulty. God, I praise you for that. Father, I want to ask that uh, as we go forth from this place, that we would see our, problem through different, our problems through different eyes. Uh, Master, we would identify them, we'd call them out, we'd hold them up to your gospel and see how they compare that in the midst of this we would offer love and comfort to those who are around us and experiencing difficulties, that we would be your agents of change in this world. We love you, O God. Thank you so much for loving us, people with problems. It's in your most precious name we pray. Amen.